0: Our scripture reading this morning is a passage we've already read uh, part of uh, in the worship service today. Psalm 32 is our scripture reading. We'll read uh, that psalm in its entirety. And then our sermon passage is 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. So that's the whole chapter of uh, 1 Samuel 5. Again, our scripture reading is Psalm 32. And our sermon passage is 1 Samuel 5, 1 12. To 12. Brothers and sisters, as the Word of God is about to be read, I call upon you to give your full attention to it. This is the Lord speaking. This is the Lord talking to you. This is the Lord revealing His will to you and telling you of His wondrous works. So please give your full attention to the Word of God. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are like a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And now turning to First Samuel But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the Ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the Ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people for there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Thus ends the reading of God's most holy, perfect, infallible word. Brothers and sisters, let us pray. Our gracious God, we give thanks to you that you have recorded in your word. You have set it down in permanent form, a record of your mighty deeds, your wondrous works. And so we're grateful, dear Lord, for those portions of your word that we have heard already in this service today. We're thankful for the power that was on display in that temple to the false god, Dagon. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us as we study your word, as we read it, as we hear it preached. We pray that you would help us, O Lord, to have a true and right reverence for you pray, dear Lord, that we would treat you as no light thing, as no minor God, but that we would understand, O Lord, that you are the living and true God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the visible and the invisible. Lord, please guide us by your spirit now as your word is proclaimed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in the previous sermon passage, in 1 Samuel chapter 4 verses 12 to 22, you'll remember that we read about the death of the high priest of Israel, Eli, who when he heard that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines, he fell off of his chair, fell backward, and he broke his neck. And verse 18 of chapter 4 implied that Eli's death was because he was old and heavy. But we saw when we were in that passage that there was a theological cause of death, as well as a physical cause of death. And the theological cause of death for Eli was that he was robbing glory from God by accruing it to himself. We saw that the word that was translated heavy in chapter 4 is translated glory or honor elsewhere in 1 Samuel, depending on the context. And this word shows up again in our passage in verses 6 and 11 in the context of bad things happening to the Philistines while the Ark of the Covenant was with them. But you also remember that the Ark of the Covenant had found itself in the possession of the Philistines, because Eli, and as a result, the people of Israel, considered the Ark of the Covenant and what it represented, God's presence with them, a small, or we might say, a light thing, something inconsequential, something unimportant. They took it for granted. They had, the, had come to see the, the Ark as merely some kind of magical talisman or lucky charm that if they took it into battle with them would surely bring about their victory against the Philistines. Israel was no longer fearful of God or in awe of His glory and since this light view of the glory of God had as its source the high priest and his sons, the Lord would begin by cleansing the tabernacle. And then... He would depart from them. And so the ark was taken in battle and wasn't returned, of course, to the tabernacle at Shiloh. It was taken by the Philistines. But God most certainly was not passive during the ark's time, the ark's sojourning, we might say, among the Philistines. His presence among them would be experienced in a most severe way. And yet, even in its severity, God's presence among them was merciful because he showed the Philistines that their gods were worthless and that he, the God of Israel, is the living and true God. Brothers and sisters, as we work our way through the sermon today, I would ask you to, to hold this thought in your minds. God, in his mercy, destroys idols to show the world that he is the God of grace. God in His mercy destroys idols so that He would show the world that He is the God of grace. The sermon is divided into three sections. The first is bow before the Lord. The second section is a severe mercy. The third section is searching for a solution. Again, bow before the Lord, that's the first section of the sermon. A severe mercy is the second, and searching for a solution is the third section of the sermon today. So let's now consider the first section, bow before the Lord. Verse 1 says, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Ebenezer was the city where the Israelites had encamped before going out to battle against the Philistines in chapter 4. Ashdod was 19 miles to the south of Ebenezer. And there in Ashdod was a temple for Dagon, a Canaanite god. And the Philistines deposited the ark there. And according to various commentators, the statue of Dagon was probably quite large. It most likely dominated the temple. The ark of God, by comparison, would have seemed quite small. It was about two and a half feet high and about two and a half feet deep and just, under, uh, just over four feet wide. And verse 2 says that they set the ark beside Dagon, which meant that the ark was at Dagon's feet. And one commentator writes, The Philistines' quest is one of triumphing and making the humbling of the God of Israel complete by taking his footstool as a trophy to Dagon. That is what the ark served as. It wasn't God himself. It was a sign of God's presence. It served as the footstool of the Lord Notice also in our passage that the author of 1 Samuel doesn't call it Dagon's statue. He doesn't refer to it as as the image of Dagon. He refers to the idol as Dagon himself. And this is important because when the idol is found prostrated before the the ark of the Lord, it's not referring to, to it as a statue. The author is referring to Dagon himself as lying out, face down before the Lord. But in verse 2, the Ark of the Covenant, the sign of of Yahweh's presence with his covenant people, it has been placed in a position of subordination to a Philistine deity. Which for the Philistines was intended to show their great superiority to Israel. Their God was greater. They had captured Israel's God. They brought it into the temple of Dagon and they put it at Dagon's feet. Verse 3 Marks a change. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. In verse 3, the author is making it absolutely clear that Dagon is incapable of doing anything for himself. He has fallen down before the Lord and he can't get up, he's helpless. His handlers have to come to his assistance. And they stand him back up and they put him in his place. And again, he towers over the ark of the Lord. But verse 4 says, But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Poor thing, he can't even cry out, help, I've fallen. This time his head head and his hands have been cut off. And for the second night in a row, he has spent all night on the floor before the ark of Yahweh, helpless. He can't do a thing. Now, now we know that that God isn't necessarily directly speaking of Dagon when he speaks of idols in Isaiah 46, verses 6 to 7. But he could have had it in mind. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith. And he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. And it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Now, I recognize that that some of you here are pet owners. Some of you own dogs. Some of you own cats. But there are occasions, and and I say this as as one who who, who doesn't own pets, who doesn't have a Dog or, or a cat. We have allergies in our family that prevent that from happening. But, but sometimes, I'm driving around our neighborhood, and I see dog owners dutifully walking their dogs around, and sometimes I wonder when I, when I see them having to clean up after their pet who is it that owns who? who? Who is in possession of whom here in this relationship? And again, I love dogs. Cats, they serve a purpose in life. I know God ordained their existence. I love dogs, <laughs> but I wonder. <coughs> Who owns whom in that relationship. And the description that we have in Isaiah 46, the description that we have in 1 Samuel 5, who is it that owns whom? Who who is serving whom? Well, well, clearly Dagon can do nothing for himself. He has to to be lifted up off of the floor by his people. He's going to have to be repaired by a goldsmith in order to get his head and his hands back on. And what we see in this passage is that Yahweh has made a mockery of Dagon and of the people who tend to him, the people who bow down before him. Why on earth would they bow down before a thing that they have to carry around and and lift up? Because it's helpless to do anything for itself. Dagon, the mighty God of the Philistine people, quite possibly at the head of their pantheon, is bowed down before and broken by the one true God. Yahweh has shown Dagon to be no God at all, just a creature, of man's imagination, just the product of man's hands. And the superstitious ways of the Philistines are shown in verse 5. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Because of what happened, they would no longer step on that threshold when entering the temple. And so sadly, verse 5 shows that their superstitions didn't end with Dagon's destruction, but it was merciful of God to show the Philistines that the outcome of their religion would be their own destruction. And that's just what God was doing. He was showing the Philistines that if they continued down this path of idol worship, that they would be broken, that they would be destroyed, just like their God. Well, that leads us to the next section, A Severe Mercy. Verse 6 says, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. In the Old Testament, when the hand of God is on someone, it is often not a good thing, especially when it's his enemies who are concerned, when, when his enemies have God's hand against them. And so, for instance, in Exodus chapter 9, verse 3, God commands Moses to tell Pharaoh that God's hand will fall with a very severe plague upon the livestock of Egypt. And earlier in Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, God tells Moses that the Egyptians will know that God is the Lord when He stretches out His hand against Egypt and causes plague after plague to afflict Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. But even though God stretched out His hand against the Egyptians as he would again and again against the Philistines, still he was revealing himself to them as the God of the covenant. He was showing to the Egyptians as well as to his own people that he is the God who keeps his promises, that he does what he says he is going to do. When God reveals himself to sinful human beings, it is at the same time a fearful, a terrifying, but also a wonderful thing. In verses three and four, when the author is describing what happened to Dagon, he is sure to say that Dagon fell to the ground, fell down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, the Ark of Yahweh. And there in in both of those instances, in verses three and four, when he describes Dagon falling down, he uses the Lord's covenant name, Yahweh. The name that God revealed to Abraham when he made that covenant with Abraham in Genesis. In Ashdod, God was making himself known to the Philistines. Now, it's true that they were not his covenant people. But ironically, they are about to treat the ark of the Lord with far more reverence than God's own people did before it was captured. That doesn't mean that they become believers. It doesn't mean that they become followers of Yahweh. But they're going to put God's people to shame in the way that they come to handle the ark of the Lord. God terrified the Philistines. He afflicted them with tumors. And when the men of Ashdod realized how bad things were getting, they said in verse 7 The ark of of the God of Israel must not remain uh, with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. The people of Ashdod want the ark of God gone from their city. And unfortunately, but unfortunately, like Pharaoh, rather than their hearts being softened, and becoming receptive to the truth that the God of Israel is the living and true God, their hearts were hardening. But God's heavy hand upon a person does not always result in a hardening of heart. In Psalm 32, which we read both as our assurance of pardon and as our scripture reading, David makes it clear that it was God's heavy hand upon him that brought about David's confession of sin and repentance for his sin. And while Acts chapter 11 verses 20 and 21, which is at the top of your, your bulletins, while it doesn't use the word heavy in relation to God's hand, the hand of God is seen there as the source of a great number of people coming to believe in the Lord. God's hand is severe. It's heavy upon those who refuse to bend their knee to Him. But His hand is merciful. That same hand is merciful to those who do. The same set of circumstances, the terror of the Lord and the affliction of tumors with a different set of people might have resulted in a different outcome than it did with the Philistines. For those upon whom God set his love before the foundation of the world, suffering and sorrow often is the thing that leads to repentance and faith. Oftentimes it's the thing that drives us to Christ. For the Philistines, the heavy hand of God led to the hardening of their hearts. And yet we cannot deny that the heavy hand of God upon them, seen in the sense of a general call to repentance, was merciful because it revealed Him to be the only true God. It revealed their gods, Dagon chief among them, as being nothing but a false idol. That leads us to part three of the sermon today, searching for a solution. As we've seen, like Pharaoh, the Philistines hardened their hearts against Yahweh. They, They were terrified, but instead of their terror leading to repentance and faith, it led them to wanting to do whatever they could to get the ark of the Lord out of their city, out of Ashdod. And once the men of Ashdod decided to get the Ark of the Covenant out of there, verse 8 says, So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the Ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the Ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And so they brought the Ark of of the God of Israel there. Now they knew that the destruction of Dagon and the outbreak of tumors correlated with the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant in Ashdod, But they couldn't be sure at this point that the presence of the ark had caused these things to happen. That the presence of the ark had caused the outbreak. The city of Gath was 12 miles to the east of Ashdod in the valley of Elah. The same valley in which David defeated Goliath later on in 1 Samuel. And when the ark was brought into Gath, verse 9 says the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. Now the results that took place in Ashdod had been replicated in Gath. The Philistines had greater reason to believe that the presence of the ark was causing the tumors, but they decided to send it on to Akron for further testing, as described in verse 10. But the people of Ekron would have none of that. They weren't interested in trying to replicate the findings that happened in in, in Ashdod and Gath. As far as they were concerned, there was more than enough evidence to prove causation. They did not want the Ark of the Lord there. And verse 10 says that as soon as the Ark arrived there, the people of Ekron cried out and said, they have brought around to us the Ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. In verse 11, the men of Ekron call for a summit of all the lords of the Philistines. Now, chapter 6 tells us there were five lords in all. And at this summit, the people of Ekron begged the leaders of the Philistine cities to send the ark away because all the people there were in a deathly panic. But verse 12 tells us that it was too late. People were already dying, others were afflicted with tumors. And chapter 5 ends with the sentence, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The solution that the lords of the Philistines found, as we'll see in chapter 6, was to ask for the guidance of their pagan priests and diviners. And that wasn't the actual solution. Those priests and diviners would themselves come up with a plan uh, when they were all gathered together, which they would implement later on. But what you see here is that the leaders of each city, from Ashdod to Ekron, they were just kicking the can down the road. They sent the ark away to another city to become someone else's problem. They're stumbling about like a drunken blind man in the dark. And by the end of chapter 5, they have reached the end of their wits. And it's reminiscent of what John describes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Of course, you remember there in 1 John, the context is that he's writing to the church. And he's saying that if you are a member of the visible church, if you are a professing believer in Christ, and yet you hate your brother, you are not a believer in Christ. You're not a true believer in Christ. You're not a member of the invisible church, though your name may be on the roll of the visible church. You cannot hate your brother and love Jesus Christ at the same time. You can't do it. Now, of course, here in 1 Samuel chapter 5, we're hearing about these pagans. They don't believe in the Lord. And of course, all they know is a hatred for their brothers. They don't care. Ashdod doesn't care if if the people of Gath suffer in the same way that they suffered. They want this thing gone. Gath doesn't care if Ekron suffers in the same way that Gath suffered. They want this thing gone from there. And in so doing, they show the faithlessness of their hearts. They were struck with terror as they witnessed the heavy hand of God. But for, the, but for the Philistines, it didn't result in them embracing the God of Israel in faith. But God cannot be faulted. He had shown the Philistines that Dagon, their chief God, was no God at all. He had displayed for them His power, which had struck them with fear. And in some ways, their response to his power had been more reverent than the Israelites, but theirs was a superstitious reverence. They were afraid of Yahweh, but it wasn't a loving fear, it wasn't a loving reverence. The sin of the Israelites might be described as overly familiar, which had led to contempt. The sin of the Philistines was one of superstition in which the presence of God, as signified by the Ark of the Covenant, was understood as some abstract power, not the personal presence of the Lord. The Philistines thought they could harness this power by bringing it into subjection to Dagon, but Yahweh showed that he will not be brought to heel at the sight of some false god. That he will not submit himself to an idol. And when all of this happened... The Philistines should have prostrated themselves before the God of Israel just as Dagon had. They should have humbly acknowledged their sins to the living and true God. And you can be sure that if they had done so, if they had done so, they would have found forgiveness and acceptance by the Lord. They would have been welcomed into his covenant people. But instead of doing this, they could not wait to get rid of the thing that they saw as a problem. As the problem, they passed the ark of the sufferings that the presence of the Lord brought from city to city to city. Yahweh had smashed their false god, but they had hardened their hearts rather than humbling themselves. Now, some of you may be familiar with the book from which the, the middle section of the middle point of this sermon was taken, A Severe Mercy. It was written by a man named Sheldon Van Auken. And Sheldon Van Alken struck up a correspondence with C.S. Lewis, and they became very good friends. And the phrase of severe mercy is one that C.S. Lewis used in relation to this man, Sheldon Van Alken. Sheldon Van Alken he married a young woman. They were very much in love at the time. They weren't Christians. They became Christians after their marriage. But but Sheldon Van Alken he he admits toward the end of the book that he had made an idol out of that relationship with his wife. She had made an idol out of the relationship with their husband. And at a certain point, after their conversion, the Lord took Sheldon's wife, nicknamed, he called her Davy, the Lord took her wife home to be with him. And that's where this correspondence with Lewis and Van Auken was was struck up. They, They began writing one another. Lewis had experienced a similar kind of grief. When his wife, Joy, passed away. Now what I don't want you to, to take from this is that if you are in danger, you might be guilty. We have some folks who are recently married, some folks who are, have only been married for a short time, some of you have been married for a long time. I don't want you to think that, that the Lord will take your spouse away if you make an idol out of them. But what you need to know is this. What you can take away from it is this, that the Lord will break your idols. The Lord will take away from you the things that you set up in his place. Van Aachen admitted after his wife had died that he had become jealous of God because of the relationship that his wife had developed with the Lord. That he, he began to see... After his wife had been taken, that, that she had a closer relationship with the Lord than she had with him, and he was jealous of that. Why? It wasn't so much that he had set his wife up as an idol for himself, as that he had set himself up as, a idol, as an idol to which he wanted his wife to bow down. He wanted her worship, he wanted her praise. And he was jealous of the fact that the Lord was getting it instead of him. Now, of course, that's an extreme case. But brothers and sisters, we can make idols out of anything. Calvin is right when he wrote that the human heart is an idol factory. And the chief idol that we construct, the chief idol that we set up is the idol of ourselves. We want nothing more than to have other people bow down before us. Now, don't get me wrong. If something bad happens in your life, that does not necessarily mean, it does not have to mean, that it happens because you have set up an idol and God is knocking it down. But there are times in our lives where we will suffer the severe mercy of the Lord. He will not permit us to worship something that is not him. He will show us the error of our ways. He will lead us away from that idolatry. And when that happens, brothers and sisters, don't harden your heart. When you hear the voice of the Lord, the way that the Israelites did at Meribah, in the wilderness. Don't harden your hearts and shake your fist at the Lord. Rather, bow down before the Lord, bow down at His feet and worship Him rather than demanding that He or anyone else worship you. We are just as capable, brothers and sisters, of setting up idols as the Philistines were. And all too often we do it. But the Lord is faithful. And in his severe mercy, he will smash those idols to ensure that our love and devotion is directed at him. And that the love and devotion of others is directed at him and not at us. Brothers and sisters, that is a severe mercy. But that is the mercy of the Lord. And it is good. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we pray that you would teach us to bow before you at your feet. We pray, O Lord, that we would not take offense when you smash the idols of our hearts. We pray, dear Lord, that, you would not, that we would not take offense when you cause us to be humbled. But that we would understand, O Lord, that it is indeed a severe mercy It's hard, and yet it is good, and it is loving, because you are our Father, and you will lovingly correct your children. Lord, please teach us to walk on the path of righteousness. Teach us to accept your guiding hand. Help us, dear Lord, to trust in you and to love you and to know that you love us.